Hello and welcome to the first episode of the SLB podcast, where we discuss ELT, SLA and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, President of the SLB Cooperative, and with me is Jeff Jordan, also of the Co-op SLB and the University of Leicester. yourself yeah i'm fine you are a bit of a stranger to people at the moment because you knocked off writing blog posts and tweeting uh tell us why you did that jeff yes well i just felt that the game wasn't worth the candle as they say you know i was spending too much time and i felt that i just wasn't um really getting very far on any of it i i find twitter sort of like a lot of people, I think, it's a bit kind of addictive and you, you end up spending a lot of time, which is all right if you think that you're participating in something, you know, that has some good effect. But I just felt that I was participating in rather stupid um, exchanges that they weren't really worth it. As far as the blog, I just felt that that was taking me too long to write anything decent and that I um, I had a lot of work to do now. I'm writing a book with Mike Long and I'm doing stuff with you and I'm doing stuff for Lester and I was thought that it just wasn't worth the time I was spending on it. Tell us a bit about this uh, book you're writing with Mike Long. Yes, it's about ELT of course and our aim is to kind of really seriously critique what's going on we had to go to um, a rather a smaller publisher because the the main publishers just refused to weren't interested. They said it was far too radical. So the book is uh, aimed at undergraduates and postgraduates doing things in applied linguistics and TESOL. And it looks at first at language learning, where Mike, of course, is the big expert, and then at ELT in terms of how it's delivered by mainly by course books these days, and then at teacher development, the way that you know courses like CELTA and the MAs are run, then at the people who are responsible for teacher education, teacher training and the kind of stuff that they publish and the workshops they do, uh, and really uh, criticises all of that from the point of view um, that we think it uh, represents a commercialization of ELT, that now the way that ELT is run is is basically uh, for profit. So CLT, uh, has been, Community of Language Teaching, has been sacrificed on the altar of the course book, we're all back to a way of teaching that is uh, completely uh, inefficacious and contradicts SLA findings. Um, and the whole thing is just, uh, in our opinion, big business. 
and we try to uncover the links between the examination boards, the, 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 the schools, the course book, the publishers, um, the training outfits, and show that it's all rather linked and all part of a commodification of uh, ELT that we obviously reject and we suggest uh, different kinds of uh, ELT based on task-based learning uh, and um, different kinds of assessment and also of course different kinds of organizations of teachers themselves recommending the kind of stuff that uh, you and well SLB uh, represents. So it's a pretty radical criticism of the established way in which the ELT hydra of publishers, examination boards, training boards and course providers work and um, a suggestion of an alternative. Uh, Hydra, is that your is that yours or Mike's? Uh... Uh, neither of us. I can't remember who first referred to the uh, ELT Hydra. It might have been. Was it? Uh, I really can't remember who where I picked that up. But it wasn't Mike, uh, and it's um, and I've I've adopted it from somewhere else. I must, um, of course, uh, in the book. If I we use the term, we will acknowledge uh, the <laughs> the where we got that term from but um don't the heads grow back after you lop them off if, you, if you're fighting a hydra is that or did i get that wrong <laughs> yes yes you're right <laughs> perhaps there are limitations <laughs> in, the, in the yeah 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 well the I idea mean, is a many um, a many-headed monster uh, all you know interconnected. That's that's the sort of idea of of calling it a hydra. Yeah, I think you need to, <laughs> you need uh, a monster that slowly dies off, not one that keeps. Uh, well, maybe well, that's the that's accurate one. The problem, isn't it? It's a problem of um, of kind of uh, capitalism. It's that any any attempt to criticise it are um, incorporated. It has an extraordinary ability to uh, turn back criticism on itself, you know. So uh, the rebels of um, one day are, are the lords of the, you know, people, all, all the people you can think of, Mick, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards come to mind, both of them now sitting watching uh, the the cricket at Lords, you know, um, there's a tremendous ability of um, the establishment to resist criticism and to recuperate those who, 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 who you know, invite them in um, and suddenly the critic is, is uh, sitting in the House of Lords. That's the kind of thing that happens. So perhaps the, the, <laughs> the Hydra... Um, uh, idea isn't isn't quite so inappropriate. No, and speaking of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, aren't they old friends of yours? <laughs> Maybe we should get onto that later. <laughs> Neither of them is uh, is a good friend of mine. I knew Mick Jagger uh, because he went to LSE, and I took over his uh, flat. And he was kind enough to do a concert for us to to, to collect money for lawyers. Um, but no, <laughs> I can't claim to be uh, uh, on intimate terms with, with, with Mick Jagger. <laughs> I, I 
just as I say, it's a question that he, we went to the same place at London School of Economics and um, he subsequently, as I say, did a concert at the Roundhouse with other people, the Who, and the, um, to help us collect money to defend uh, ourselves and to defend people accused, quite wrongly, of various uh, criminal offences. Let's come back to that one because that's, that's uh, a thread I want to pick up. Yeah. Uh, uh, later on, um, so we'll just take it that Mick Jagger does not invite you to watch, no. to watch the cricket. He's no, never cricket. invited me anyway. <laughs> <laughs> In talking about the book and about Mike Long, of course, we mentioned uh, TBLT or task-based language teaching, and of course, we're going to shamelessly plug the teacher training course that we put together starting in November. Why should people consider taking our task-based language teaching uh, course? What is it about TBLT that you think people should apply, basically? Yes. Well, uh, you and I both um, agree that the, the kind of normal way of doing ELT is very unsatisfactory. It produces poor results, it de-skills teachers, and it's really not a very satisfactory situation whatsoever. So when we criticise the, the kind of um, accepted way of doing ELT by using course books and going through a syllabus and seeing where you are in terms of the common, what is it called, the CBLT? You know, yeah, decide, ah, yes, you do a little test, so you're lower intermediate, and that means that you do this course, which you will <clears> use uh, headway or lower intermediate for it, and then you do an exam at the end, and, and so on. The whole thing is preposterous. Now, if you take that view, if you criticize all that, well, obviously, um, it's fair for people to say, well, what do you suggest instead? And that's where TBLT task-based language teaching comes in. We, you and I, I think, both agree that TBLT is a realistic alternative to the, the established way of doing ELT. Why? Because um, it does not use a synthetic syllabus. It doesn't cut the language up into a hundred little bits or McNuggets, as uh, Scott Thornbury so memorably called them. It treats the language holistically. It, based on a needs analysis, so that you teach what is appropriate and relevant to the people doing the course. It rejects the kind of uh, measurement of proficiency that is usually used. And it involves students in doing things. Its, it's principle is that you learn by doing, rather than teachers telling students about the language, uh, TBLT is based on students using the language to discover how it's used and, and how it works. And, and that's the best way to help students, in, in, in my opinion, and in Mike Long's, of course, of reaching some sort of a communicative competence, which is what they want. They want to be able to use the language. They want to be able to do things with it. Now, the second thing to say is that there are various types of TBLT, kind of weak versions or hybrid versions, as Ron Ellis suggests, where really there are tasks just means any kind of activity with some sort of communicative input, which really don't 
in our opinion, do the job terribly well. I'm particularly impressed, and I think you are too, with Mike Long's very strong version of TBLT. And that's why uh, we decided to do the course based on Mike Long's version, because in our opinion, it's the most rigorous it's based on uh, SLA research findings, and it is far more uh, coherent and cohesive than, than other uh, rather weaker forms of TBLT. And we decided to offer the course on it because um, putting our money where our mouth is, you know, walking the talk. Uh, and also, of course, because we hope very much that um, it will have an influence. Uh, it won't just be a few... Um, people that it, we will spread the word. I mean, it really is important uh, to um, break the silence, break the siege of course book uh, driven ELT and to try and persuade people that there are realistic and very attractive alternatives that you, they don't have to. There are alternatives and what's more very good alternatives and uh, of course we think that the, the course we do helps teachers get a handle on this alternative, understand it, where does it come from, how do you do it, um, how do you adapt it to your own uh, local context uh, and so on. So that's, um, that's why we do it. That's why we do it. I don't know if you agree. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree. Um, just to point out that the course is not just aimed at teachers, it's also aimed at uh, course designers because uh, Long's TBLT, I'm sure you'll agree, Jeff, it is a, how can I put this, a major operation to put it all together in the way that he lays it out. And it's something that involves team collaboration, not just a teacher trying to implement it by themselves. Although in the course, as you said, we, we try to show teachers how to adapt it down to that local perhaps more restricted uh, context. But at the same time, we want the course to kind of have that broad appeal and to people who make courses, who, who write materials, etc. the course is also aimed at, at them. How, how could you uh, implement TBLT both at institutional levels and uh, local levels, right? Yes, I think that's a good point. Um, there's no doubt that uh, Mike, although he's a, um, a, a, an experienced language teacher himself, he's not sort of sitting in an ivory tower, but he is nevertheless a, a rigorous academic. And the sort of full Monty of uh, Mike Long's TBLT will be, for perfectly understandable reasons, impractical for lots of people interested in TBLT. So it's extremely important for us, and Mike of course completely agrees, uh, in our course to appreciate uh, the, the local context in which people doing the course find themselves, uh, and to talk very seriously and to consider very seriously how um, Mike's model of TBLT can be adapted for local uh, context and it's ex very important for us to confront the, the initial reaction sometimes that well that's all very well for university we couldn't possibly do something like that in our situation uh, you can do something in your situation uh, obviously not exactly the same as um, what one might do in a 
in a university department. So yes, I, I completely agree. Um, we're very, very interested in talking about ways in which this approach uh, can be uh, applied to local context. No, there is no, you know, one fits all scenario like bloody course books supposedly uh, it's all about the local context and that's the most important thing um so yes i i of course i agree with you exactly i mean and, and since it all stems from student needs um it's yes it's, it's never going to be a homogenous uh, entity tblt and what we're doing is just saying to people who say oh you know this is the way it is, and there's not really any realistic way out. Well, there is, and ours is one, and, and there are others. Uh, that, you know, dogmas and stuff. That marvellous stuff going on in Palestine, the Hands Up Project. Uh, all sorts of local things that people tell you about and you hear about in local situations do manage to overcome this horrible, grey, unsatisfactory ELT that is suffocating good teaching so you know there are that, that's the kind of message maybe we you know don't give up don't <laughs> think you have to do this crap there are alternatives and tblt is one of them uh, and it's up to everybody who wants to fight to have a look at alternatives so ours is one right and if anyone's interested in finding out more you can go to learn.slb.coop we'll put a, a a link to the course page in the podcast notes and uh well what can we say it's uh, a 90 hour course but it's spread out over quite a number of weeks so really the time commitment's around about four hours a week there's lots of good reading there's video presentations by jeff and myself and we have guest tutors uh, mike long himself whose uh, book on SLA and TBLT is the kind of core text of the course, and Roger Gilabert, who is, uh, in fact, a new member of the co-op, Jeff. We, had a, we got him signed up officially yes, yesterday. And uh, Roger is at the Universitat de Barcelona, and he does a lot of uh, work on TBLT, on task design, task complexity. And he's also delivered TBLT courses, one famously for Catalan journalists, and he, he comes onto our course to talk about that really really interesting presentation anyway um we'll stop plugging this course just now but we'll keep on the well let's 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 just <laughs> let's just say we've also got uh, glenn vulture's gonna help us uh, next time round, and we're also hopefully uh kathy doughty too um so uh um a range of brilliant uh interesting uh guests will We'll supplement and, and I, I, the stuff I, I, we do. And I'm on it as well. So Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yes, I think um, we should say that we're learning as we go. We're, our first one, I think we, we you know, won't be big-headed of us to say it, went very well, got very good um, feedback from those uh, 18 who did it. Mm -hmm. uh, we were, you know, really... Uh, learning as we went we hope that uh, we've learned and that as you say one of the problems we had with our first course is that we it was too intensive so that's why we've spread it out over longer this time and of course you know we, we are learning as we go and we depend so much uh, of course on, on, on the people who do it so um, roll up roll up <laughs>
Yeah, I mean, we had a great range of people, for people who work in, in general English kind of uh, EFL contexts to people who work in very specialised environments like uh, an aviation school. Um, yes. So, yeah, it was, it was, we did learn a lot and hopefully that will feed into the, this coming course and, and to future courses besides. I'd just like to get back into this question of, of Mike Long's version of TBLT. I think in his book he, he distinguishes it from the other versions by putting his with capital letters, capital initials, and everything else is task-based with a small t and a small b. But I'm just thinking back to when you first presented to our co-op about five years ago and Mike's book had just come out. Um, and you mentioned it to us, but you, you had, a, I think, a, a slightly different preference when it came to uh, syllabus types and, and, and how to deliver efficient, effective language teaching. Can you maybe talk a bit about that? What's changed? Because I think you, you're, you were a little bit more partial to the Jane Willis framework, TBLT, and you were more in favour at that point of a kind of process syllabus brain kind of approach. And you thought that maybe Long's approach was too much to have a go at. But Yes, um, you're quite right. When I uh, came first to SLB, I, I was very um, influenced by Breen. You know, Breen, I think it's 1987, his uh, paradigm shift in syllabus design. Now, Breen um, says that um, you, you don't start with anything. You just start... Well, you, you, you begin with an initial um, unit, let's say. So you find out more or less what the students are interested in and you base your course on first on, on language as a holistic system. You don't chop it up. You've, of course, you, 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 take you take consideration of the level of the students in terms of how, how much they know and how much they can use. And then you you do tasks. Breen's thing is certainly to do with tasks. But the whole point of uh, Breen's thing is that once you've done a bit of it, let's say you've done 10 hours, you stop and then the students look back at what they've done and they decide what they liked and what they didn't like and, and whether it was uh, too difficult and whether they it was relevant and, and so on. And then they, together with the they plan the next part of the course. Um, and so that's the way it goes. You begin and then the, the students say, OK, we want to talk about... Um, uh, business meetings and we want to we, we think we need to practice so and so and so and so and this would be useful and um, uh, we we think that groups are okay but we don't like uh, the pair work and, and so on and so on so that's the idea of Breen's process syllabus is that together and it and it's kind of near the sort of thing that Meddings and, and Scott Thornbury are doing in the dogma is that you really you, you make it up as you go along uh, and that the students have probably more input into it than, than the teacher. So what it, it's a sort of circular process. You do something, you try it out, then you stop and you have feedback on it. You plan the next part of the course together and on you go like that. Always... Um, insisting on using the language holistically, always spending the majority of classroom time doing things, not, not uh, studying the grammar and vocabulary, but actually working through communicative activities together, but responding to 
the learners' uh, feedback and the learners' input and the learners' suggestions. So that's what um, Breen sort of suggested, and that's what I thought was pretty good. Can I just, uh, now, what Mike, I just bought it, <coughs> bought, bought yeah, in, of course. Um, because the reality, the reality is sometimes that when you when you sit down with students and review a part of a course and ask them what they want, and they sometimes say, "I want grammar." Uh, and uh, I want I want a class on the present perfect or whatever. Uh, what you're saying is we have to take this holistic approach. So uh, would we be telling students, no, that's not actually what you need. We need, you know, what would you be telling the student in that case? Yes. Well, there are. <laughs> that's one of the um, problems that uh, Mike Long would would would. Uh, that's a question that Mike Long would ask, and I, I think it's a very pertinent question. Um, uh, how much do they know about language learning? Not as much as a good teacher does. The point is this, as you say, what, what happens if the students say to you, we want you to tell us about grammar, we want you to teach us the present perfect, we want to do drills, we want to spend most of the time studying the language and we don't feel comfortable actually using it and we don't like you asking us uh, what we think about um, climate change or any of that stuff. What we want you to give us the language just we want to sit here and we want you to tell us and we'll write it down and then we'll go home and memorize it now if they say that you <laughs> and the brain system you <laughs> you're in a bit of a jam because it's learners you know blah 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 um, so um, what long says is they're not the experts and we need to find out from uh, talking to them and and uh, the, the people around them, what they actually need the language for, and then we as the experts will design pedagogic tasks which will lead them through what they need, what they've told us uh, they need to do with the language. So that's precisely Long's objection to Breen's uh, syllabus design that it um, puts people in charge, or, or, or says that it does, where um, those people are not really equipped to know the, 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 the best, most efficacious way of helping them to reach their, their objectives. So what Long says is, and he, persuaded, he persuades me, um, that what we should do is begin with a, a needs analysis so that we make sure that what we're doing is relevant to the teachers, to the students' needs. We find out where they have, and, and remember that the needs analysis is a task-based needs analysis, not the usual sort, where you say, what are the target tasks that you're, you try to identify, target tasks? What will these people actually have to do uh, with the English they want to learn? And in order to do that, you have to talk not just to them, but you have to talk to their bosses and the people they work with, and, and, and you have to go and see, and so on. So once you've got the information about the, the, their needs, then it's an expert's job, not a student's job, to decide the best way to deliver, the, uh, to help uh, achieve those needs. Of course, that doesn't mean the, the students have no input whatsoever. There are feedback sessions and of course you listen to them when they say they like this and, and, and so on. But you do not give them the kind of executive control that, that Breen suggests. So that's uh, really how I shifted. I was very 
uh, enamoured with. Uh, I, I mean, it, it ring, you know, it rang a big bell with me in the 1980, the late when I think at 87 when he read. I thought, yes, that's right, and it and it and it kind of um, was in tune with the feeling of the time, you know, kind of all those people that um, we need to get out of this horrible hole of um, situational language teaching that they went on in International House and, and elsewhere. Uh, and Breen's syllabus seemed to be a very brave um, leap in that direction. Uh, but I think uh, considering um, the problems with it and considering uh, Long's argument, I am now persuaded that uh, his approach is better and I also think that um, my uh, my the way I, my feelings about um, uh, Willis um, I like that kind of um, uh, framework the three-step framework plan it do it reflect on it um, and I think there is a um, play, the problem with it is that it just gets uh, again recuperated and sucked back into uh, the usual, you know, stuff that that happens. So the problem with Willis's thing, as with Ellis, is that it puts too much emphasis back on on talking about the language, doing the same old bloody stuff as skills practice and, and vocabulary and grammar revision and all the rest of it. And it, and, you know, it throws the baby out. So although I, I, I was initially attracted to Willis's framework, that three-step thing, um, I think, as I say, the problem with it is that it's been recuperated. It's been kind of uh, pushed into, you know, squeezed into course books. You can see that kind of stuff. Uh, and really, um, it, in the end, it doesn't, it doesn't, lead to any big transformation. The great thing about Long's uh, TBLT is that you, you, you cut the 70% the, the, the of the, the teacher time and, the, and talking about the language and you actually spend most of the time with students working in the language, not teachers talking about the language. Sure. You, you were persuaded by Mike Long's version of TBLT. Are you completely persuaded by Mike Long's theory of, of, of language and, and acquisition, or are there some, some differences there? I, I just about fully agree with Mike's uh, view of second language acquisition. Um, I am with him, and I wrote a couple of things with him and with Greg. I am with him um, in not being fond of the sort of uh, postmodernist, socio-linguistic, socio-cultural, relativist approach. I think that um, by far the best way, um, the, the best results, the most uh, important, significant results in SLA research have been done uh, in psycholinguistics by those taking a, a empirically based rational uh, approach. And I think that um, he's right in his criticisms of sociolinguistic approaches, uh, of um, sort of off-the-wall stuff like Lantoff and David Block. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty much agree with. I, I also agree with him in his criticisms of constructivism. And although, who knows now? That it's a very exciting time. There are. 
now developments in this sort of alternative way of looking at SLA um, in terms of uh, not the mad Diane Larson Freeman or any of that or, or, or Scott Thornbury's you know garbled misunderstanding of it all but if you come to someone like Nick Ellis for example that kind of approach which totally rejects Chomsky's UG um, and, and says that you can understand that second language acquisition can be a process where no such innate device is needed. It seems to me that it, it's, it's wrong. I still think it's wrong. I think it's, uh, it, it doesn't work. And I agree with Kevin Gregg's criticisms of it and Suzanne Carroll's and a lot of other people's. But I think it's promising. I don't jump on board the bandwagon as so many have and, and, and say, oh, well, you know, it's all over. But I don't reject it. And I don't think Mike reject, rejects it either. It might be the case that he's a bit more, you know, he's leaning. And now he's starting to work quite a lot with Nick Ellis, I think, uh, which shows that perhaps he's leaning more in that direction than I am. So I, if there are any disagreements between us, it might be that he is slightly more tolerant, let's say, or, or optimistic, to, let's put it that way, about the kind of research that Nick Ellis is doing uh, than, than I am. But I, I, um, I think in, in general we, we, we agree that um, on the basic... The, the, the consensus of findings in SLA, really, what's important here, and actually Mike started this new chapter of uh, instructed SLA. You know, there's now a, a big... Um, it's been going on for a while, but he and I forget the other one. Two, two of them um, have started a, an important journal on this and um, conferences and so on. So really what's important is instructed SLA, if you're interested in English language teaching. And instructed SLA research shows that by far the most important way that um, people learn, even in classrooms, is implicitly. So that's the really big, big thing. How much uh, attention should teachers spend to explicit uh, learning and how much to implicit learning? Um, on that point, um, Mike and I completely agree, and so incidentally uh, does Nick Ellis and, and others who take the view, the new view of, of, of SLA. So that is where the consensus is. Even if they disagree about with, with Chomsky's UG view, uh, and if they take an emergentist view, as Nick Ellis does, emergentists and uh, nativists agree that the most important way in which people learn a second language uh, is implicitly. Whatever the various views that people have about SLA, at least there's agreement on that. Um, and that's, um, you know, that's the important thing. The, lots of SLA research, uh, there's lots of contradictions, people doing weird stuff and a lot of it is um, not terribly important for language teachers. But what is important is this consensus of opinion on, on the, the essential way in which people learn a second language. And it is very different from the way that they learn geography or biology 
That's what's important. Sure. sure. And that's why uh, TBLT it, it makes more sense than using a course book or using a synthetic uh, or product syllabus. Sure. Can we just uh, unpack this a little bit, though? Because, yeah, I mean, I, I accept that the the basic thrust of SLA uh, or the, there's a kind of cons- consensus of opinion about implicit versus explicit learning, but I think people would be interested. You've mentioned a few terms. I'm not sure if they're for the same uh, thing, but you've said constructivist, uh, emergentist, yes. uh, non-nativist. Is that the kind of... When we talk about people, people like Nick Ellis and Larson Freeman... Are these all terms that are apply, applicable to them? And what, what, what do they kind of mean? Yes. In terms of understanding how people learn a second language, first of all, a division between psycholinguistics and sociolinguistics. Mm-hmm. So the psycholinguistic view sees uh, language learning as a psychological, something that goes on in, in, in the mind. And the sociolinguists want to see it as uh, something that is uh, socially constructed. Inside the psycholinguistic camp, there were those who took the view that Chomsky's view of language and language learning was correct. And those who took the view that although Chomsky might be uh, a good model for first language, which is, which is the only thing he talks about, Chomsky says very little indeed about second language acquisition. So um, those who were studying second language acquisition inside the psycholinguistic school uh, said, although Chomsky is very well and good for first language acquisition, it's not very applicable to second language acquisition, particularly, um, and we're talking here about uh, as a second, not not bilingualism, of course. In terms of second language acquisition, and and certainly after certain what were called critical periods, people learn a second language in a a different way, uh, and Chomsky's model is not applicable. So there we had people who either agreed with Chomsky or didn't, and those who didn't tended to be in the socio-linguistic camp, and their models of second language acquisition, socio-cultural models, said that language is a social construct. It's constructed by a group of people using it for symbolic and, and, and communicative purposes. And so that's the way we should understand it. <laughs> It doesn't get very far. It doesn't explain very much, in my opinion. Uh, and there's no credible so, you know, theory yet. But what did happen was, in the last 20 years, well, 30 perhaps, constructivists. Now, constructivism means that language is, is constructed, but it's nothing to do with the, the social construct. In this view... Uh, it's con- language is constructed by uh, neural networks, and it's essentially a behavioristic thing. What they what they said was, you don't need to explain learning a language in terms of innate disposition and 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 um, parts of the mind that are dedicated to language learning, as Chomsky says. Chomsky says we have a, a humans are different in the sense that they have this special capacity thanks to uh, a language acquisition device. They say you don't need that. You can explain the way that people learn languages simply by looking at the input they get. The input is enough. 
the, the, the environment, the linguistic environment they're in, that through a series of brain operations, neural operations, can explain it. So actually it was getting back to a kind of empiricist, behavioristic view. So from constructivism came <laughs> emergentism, very much the same thing. Constructivists, emergentists, all the same idea that you do not need Tomsky, you don't need to an appeal to mind. Uh, there are more and less radical views of this. And Ellis, who now has become the kind of most articulate and most exciting exponent of the emergentist view, he says you, you can understand language learning in terms of frequency of input. So the more frequently you get something, the, 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 the deeper the furrow between the syntaxes and so on, the, the, you know, the, the more the brain will remember it and it will associate it with it and so on. So that's the model. And what they're trying to do is show that a computer can learn this model. That's what a constructivist did in McKinney's people in the, in the 1990s. Now what they're trying to show is we can build language and we can get an understanding of language without any deus ex machina, any language acquisition device, any part of the brain that's supposed, or the, or the mind that's supposed to be devoted to okay. it. And they've had very limited success. I think Greg has the best critique of this. I'm not sure if he calls it. I think, yes, yes he refers to it as emergentism. So... Um, in terms of the the vocabulary, connectionism, connectivism, emergentism, uh, and so on, all of these are psycholinguistic theories which reject the Chomskyan view that uh, learning a language is helped by a disposition of uh, the mind, which uh, limits the the parameter the the the, the field. What some people say um, is it's all over. Chomsky's lost. I really don't think that's the case, and I don't think Mike thinks that's the case, but it's certainly the case that there is much more interest than there used to be. People uh, in, in ELT, like Scott Thornbury, have a very poor grasp, in my opinion, of these matters, and I think Scott, particularly in his A to Z, dedicated uh, one week to this, uh, to Chomsky, I think it was. P is for the poverty of the stimulus. You see, then that's the biggest argument for Chomsky. Chomsky says, what we know, what children know about language when they're three and four years old can't be explained uh, by uh, the... How can they... How do they know all this? Yeah. And what children know is done by giving them grammaticality judgment uh, tests and so on. It's not asking them to articulate. <laughs> so then their knowledge of the language, as demonstrated through these tests they do, cannot be explained by appeal to the input they get. And that is the main argument for, or one of the main arguments for Tom Johnson. He said, how do you explain that? And they can't. Mm. Thornbury's discussion of that showed a, a real um, lack of, uh, of knowledge and lack of understanding. And, 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 um, and I'm afraid that uh, in the ELT, among people like that, that, there's not much understanding of it at all. And they dismiss it 
you know, without really knowing what they're dismissing and understanding the complexities of the issues. Mm. It, it's perfectly it's perfectly possible, I would suppose, to uh, hold both positions at once. Maybe that you agree with Chomsky as far as first language acquisition is concerned, but that by the time you learn a second language, that this that the, the the language acquisition device doesn't doesn't come into play, or it's um, it's not active for an adult learner, or yes. Yes, that's, that's in fact my view. I don't think uh, it has much to do with it. I don't think it's particularly interesting for SLA. But underlying that, if you were, the, the, the question is still, how did we learn our first language? Now, um, what uh, Nick Ellis says is that we learned the first language without any need for um, a modular mind. Uh, so it rejects that. He said, we learn the first language exactly the same way as we learn a second language or any language. We learn it because of the power law and frequency and so on. Mm. That's what explains it. Not a modular mind where one of the modules is devoted to making sense. We're hardwired with a device that interprets the input we get and, and, and thus make sense of it. I take the view that we learn first language in one way through a modular mind and through what Tomsky suggests, uh, but we learn a second language thanks to, the and, and but obviously there are problems there from transfer and so on, but thanks to the, the way that we've learned our first language, and incidentally, we ought to here to say that most people learn two languages, where that most people are bilingual treatment. The majority of the world's population, and, until the, you know very recently, was bilingual or more. So people learn multiple languages, but they learn it when they're kids, and they learn it in the way that Chomsky suggests, in my opinion. A different thing is how la adults learn a second language, and that's, um, you know, they need help, uh, but nevertheless, whether you believe in Chomsky, whether you accept Chomsky's view or whether you accept the emergentist view, the emergentists and the nativists uh, and those in between, um, incidentally, you think of people like William O'Grady, who, 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 who thinks there is a modular mind, but he doesn't think there's uh, a special module for the language acquisition device. So there are, you know, complications there. But in any case, O'Grady, Nick Ellis, and the most rabid, uh, you know, gas and, um, I don't know, who's uh, real, Greg and, and Tomskists like that, all of these people all agree that by far the most important way in which we learn languages is implicitly. And that's the important. And is it is it maybe the the part of Nicholas where he talks about the interface between uh, this implicit learning and explicit knowledge? Is that the part that they think you think that that Long is most interested in? Because it seems to. Yes, that's where they they're working together on this. And in fact, in in his uh, 2015 book, he he mentions this this idea that he's got from Nicholas is what he calls, you have to reset the dial. Nick Ellis says, we learn our first language, not with any appeal 
to the language acquisition device. We learn it according to the input we get. But what happens is that once we've got our first language, then we're tuned in that way. We're not born with it. It's not innate, but because of experience, because of all the input and our, our use of language, we've got habits that are stuck. And that's the way that we process input of a second language. We, we process it through the filter determined by the first language. And that stops uh, non-salient parts of the input, you know, uh, things that don't matter, things that don't matter, you know, you, you don't have to understand them in order to get the message, stops us from acquiring certain parts of the language. Um, so you can pick, if, if you're learning, if your first language is uh, I don't know, Spanish and you're trying to learn English, you can pick most of it up in the same way that you, you picked your first language up. But you won't pick certain uh, non-salient parts of it, of it up. You'll only get so far. And that's, says Nick Ellis, and now Mike Long seems to agree with him, that's where explicit learning comes in. What you have to do is draw students' attention to the non-salient parts of the second language once or twice. And once you've done that, that, says Nick Ellis, and Mike Long seems to be going along with him, resets the dial, as it were. And so that, so that subsequent exemplars are learnt implicitly. So it's like, oh, right, it goes like that. And once you've done that, uh, then implicit learning takes over again. So that the function of the explicit uh, instruction is to draw attention once or twice, say, oi, look at this. Um, and, and after that, implicit learning takes over again. I'm not um, so convinced about all that, but Mike certainly seems to be. He thinks that, uh, um, and, and, and you know, God knows he knows a damn sight more than I do about it. So, so that looks like, you know, an interesting thing to do. And it, and, it, and it does have very important pedagogic implications, obviously, for the kind of attention that you draw. I suppose this is another area. I am not very convinced of Schmidt's noticing mm. hypothesis, which has had such a huge, you know, you hear all these people, the unmentionable one and all sorts of other people talking about noticing. Oh, you, you know, you have to help them notice. This becomes a, a blanket excuse for grammar teaching or banging people over the head 100 times with the same lexical phrase or whatever it is. I, I, I think one of the problems about Schmidt's hypothesis, it, it, first he had to really weaken it as, a, a, you know, his original thing was noticing is a, is a sufficient condition for language learning. And he had to really backpedal on that after criticism. Now, he says, the more you notice, the more you learn, which is, you know, kind of less of, le much less. So, yeah, weaker. Much, yeah. much weaker. But in any case, what does that mean? You know, what does noticing mean? And I think what, what Nick Ellis is doing, and Mike Long, is, I think that's why he likes it, is, is, is kind of um, helping to answer that question. What does, it, what does it mean? And I think there, Nick Ellis is, is, is trying to get a better handle on that. And I think uh, Mike thinks it's very promising. I, I'm not, not so sure. I, and, and one of the people who makes me think the same is, is Kevin Gregg, 
Uh, and another one is Suzanne uh, Carroll. Well, these are all people that maybe we can get on the podcast at some point and we can... Yes, yes, uh, yes. Put these things... Suzanne Carroll is uh, extremely... Kevin Gregg is, a, is my hero, as you know. Uh, it'd be wonderful if you could get... Um, I'm sure he'd be happy to, and it'd be uh, it'd be fascinating to hear what he has. Well, to say. I think you should uh, ask him and and yes. do the interview. Why not? That, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, I'd and love we'll need to. to get, we'll need to get Mike on as well to go yeah. to some of these yeah. questions. Um, just yeah. to clarify, just just pulling back a little bit, this idea of uh, salient or non-salient items. So, just to give some examples, no, we're talking about things like um, ed endings or or plural forms that. Uh, you don't really have to notice them often to understand what's being said, right? So you might miss that someone's used an ED for past, but they've used a time adverbial, so you know they're talking about the past, right? So uh, these these things don't stick out, so they don't don't get taken up maybe as, as readily as things that are more obvious. Is that, is that what it yes. what it's about? Yes, that's the idea, that the non-salient things are things that um, go unnoticed. Well, they don't, salient, you know, they don't stand out. Not, not, let, let's uh, not use Schmidt's uh, construct of noticing here. As you say, things like the regular ending of, of, of past tense verbs, you know, or the famous third person singular S. It, it really doesn't, if I is a he goes, I mean, it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. Nobody has the slightest. Uh, and that's, that's of course, the difference between noticing and saying to you, you and I will, not just because we're teachers, even, even people who are not teachers will notice uh, that somebody says he go, but it, it, it has absolutely no, just about no effect on, on, on me, you know, on understanding and comprehension. So those those kind of things um, that parts of the language that are either non-salient that they don't make any or very infrequent or, or fossilization. Now the people are not very happy with that term, but in any way you reach a certain because it you know of course you go on learning. It's, you know, it's fossilization is not what it is, but it it's like. You, you get to a certain level and, and you think, right, you know, that's enough. Not, not consciously, but now you can, you can understand more or less and you can get the beer and you can, you can do what you, you have to do with the, with the second language. So in a way, you sort of stop learning. And, and when you get to that point, what is it that you don't learn? What are the bits that you don't learn? Well, we know because it's so frequent that finally you do learn the third person S, but it's late. You know, we know in the sequence of development of learning that that comes late. Why? Because it doesn't bloody matter uh, and so on. So obviously the other things you learn late would be other ways of saying things. Uh, you know, whatever good, bad, blue, you know, once you've got those, maybe... Uh, unless you're in a particular field, domain, you, you won't learn shades of colours or you won't learn five adjectives that mean the same as not, and, and so on and so on. So these are the kinds of things that in order to learn those, uh, the suggestion is that's where instruction comes in. That's, that's the role of explicit instruction. 
is to push you so that you keep learning and you keep um, getting more competent in your use of the language. That's a kind of general view and what Ellis is contributing to. Uh, he, I think, is the other one with Long, actually. I think it's Long and Ellis are actually the two. They, they did the first two papers in the instructed SLA journal. Volume 1, Issue 1, had two papers, and I think they were by uh, Long and the other one was by Nick Ellis. So that's it. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to say the place of explicit instruction is to help people reset the dial, to help them get over either in, entrenched ways of processing so that they, they, they process the input better and, and that leads to better output, either that or that they keep learning new stuff. So that's the, those are the two areas where explicit instruction can help. And then the question is, to what extent is that done by correction? What is the role of correction? As you know, Truscott and people say just about nut and, and, and crash, and they would say, you're wasting your time. Don't, don't bother with it. Others say, like Long and, and, and Ellis, in fact, Nick Ellis, recasts actually do help. The suggestion was at first in the research they didn't now. So anyway, that's, 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 that's where we are. The question for language teachers is, what is the role of explicit instruction? It certainly isn't walking into the classroom and saying, today we're going to have a look at the present perfect and, and spending half an hour on it. Unless, of course, you've got a certain group of people who happen to be, you know, in a very, and that's what they want to do. And it, it, not saying never do it, but that's not the, you know, normally that you wouldn't set out to do that. There, there have to be, you know, some particular circumstances that make that okay. So the question then is, how can SLA research help teachers to decide where they should intervene and where what what the, is the role of explicit instruction but that sure. should all be uh, on the assumption that what we do as ELT in, in ELT is provide people with the opportunity to learn implicitly and the best way to do that is through either content learning that's a very good alternative CLT you know if you want to learn anthropology, do it in English. That's, that's excellent. Or task-based language teaching. Now, as our conversation went on, it became evident that this episode was going to have to be a two-parter. So let's press the pause button here and wrap up until next time, when we'll be talking more about SLA, as well as getting into politics and finding out exactly why Jeff got chucked out of the London School of Economics in the late 1960s. We'll also be trying to answer your questions from Twitter. In the meantime, although Jeff has stopped writing his blog, it is still available at applingdiesel.wordpress.com you'll find a link in the notes of this episode. You can also follow SLB via our website, www.slb.coop, as well as follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Links again will be in the programme notes. Many thanks to Jeff for participating today, and to you for listening, and we'll be back soon with part two. Cheerio!